Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament. Romans 8, verses 18 through 27 is our text this morning. Truly, this chapter, as I've said before, is the apex of the doctrine of justification by faith. It's also the high point of the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And we said last week that the reason we can have assurance of salvation is by observing sustained sanctification over a lifetime. That is, as we make progress in the faith, God is separating us from sin. He's growing us in the area of personal holiness. That gives us assurance that we are his children. That is, we have been adopted into his forever family. And that assurance leads to a bold and confident sort of living, not an arrogant lifestyle, but a confident lifestyle in the here and now. And it also gives us great courage as we face our own mortality as we grow older because of the future glory that we anticipate as heirs of God. And as we saw last week, joint heirs with all that is Christ. And we closed the message last week with a warning, though, about something known as overrealized eschatology. It's the mistake of living in the here and now as if it were heaven. I often remind myself, and I'll remind you today, there is a heaven. This ain't it. This life is hard. And it's especially difficult for Christians because we are strangers and aliens here. It's not our home. We are disconcerted and sometimes uh, in a fog because of what's going on in the world because we know this isn't right. Something's amiss here. We are passing through to our true home, of course, which is in heaven. I have a friend who wrote a book a few years ago about nine phrases that Christians believe are in the Bible that are not. One of those is cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible. But one of the phrases that he left out, perhaps he'll pick it up in his uh, volume two, goes like this, quote, if you are too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good, end quote. You've all heard it. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met anyone that was too heavenly minded? Yeah, me either. Our problem as Christians is not that we're too heavenly minded. Your problem is probably like mine. We are not heavenly minded enough. The things and comforts and pleasures of this very temporary life compete every moment of every day for the affections that we owe only to the Lord Jesus Christ. But with the knowledge and assurance that our faith will be sight, that all the promises of God are true and will be ultimately attained, the things of this world, as the song says, should grow strangely dim as we draw closer to home. That includes suffering. The suffering that is common to man and specific to persecution of the church, fades to insignificance in the light of future glory and future grace. This is Paul's point in our text this morning. Let's read it now. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading hearing of this, his word. Now, we know that it's a great privilege to be called children of God, and we know also that with great privilege comes great responsibility, great obligations. But responsibility and obligations are, are two words that seem to have disappeared from our cultural lexicon. Lou Holtz was a famous uh, college football coach, some of you will remember. He was asked recently the difference in today's players and the players that he coached 30 years ago. And without hesitation, he said this. He said, 30 years ago, players spoke of responsibilities and obligations to their team. Today, they speak of personal privilege and rights. As Christians, we have lots of privileges, lots of rights by virtue of being called sons of the Most High. But with that comes also the responsibility to suffer for His name. Look back up at verse 16 here in chapter 8. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's a settled thing. God has declared us in His family. And if children, we're His heirs. That stands to reason. If we're heirs of God, that makes us also fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The evidence that we're born again is our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. So I think we better review, though, the nature and the source of suffering in this life. When God created this world, as Bradley just read, he set man over it. Everything was perfect. There was no suffering, certainly no death. But because of sin's entrance into the world and the curse of sin which came, there is lots of pain and lots of suffering and lots of death everywhere. Really, human suffering can be divided into four categories. Number one, suffering that is common to all humanity. That is, by virtue of being human beings, there's certain suffering that we'll do because of the fall. Sometimes, though, pain is the consequence directly of disobedience. If you've had to pay a ticket recently for which you deserved it, this is the kind of pain you endured direct consequence of your own sin. Third, there is pain that is God's chastening or chastisement or discipline of his children. This is reserved only for Christians. God loves us too much to allow us to ruin our lives in sin. He puts that hedge of thorns about us so that if we get to the left or to the right, he brings us back with pain. But then there's a fourth kind of suffering that is again unique to Christians and it's what we call persecution. It's suffering for Christ's sake and for his name. Its source is Satan, and he uses his children, unbelievers, to bring it about. Job is a great example of this, who suffered for righteousness' sake. Now, there's no honor nor reward for suffering in the first three ways, but for the last, suffering for Christ's sake, the Bible says there is great reward. But the truth is, no one who's in their right mind enjoys suffering from any of these categories. All suffering. 
all suffering can be endured by believers if we know for certain that it is temporary, that there is relief and joy on the other side. The writer of Hebrews says this is how Jesus endured the cross and suffered the shame for the joy set before him. He knew and had confidence that on the other side, the Father had promised to glorify the Son, and he believed the Father's promises were true. Now, believe it or not, that truth is related to what's going on in Eastern Europe right now. You're watching on the news. You know that Russia is a communist country. Communism is a political system in which the government owns and controls most of the natural resources. And theoretically, in that system, the laborers share equally in the benefits. Now, I'll say theoretically because it never works that way. The father of communism was a German philosopher named Karl Marx. And he expressed the ideas of communism in a book published in 1848 titled The Communist Manifesto that became a full-fledged political movement after his death and fueled revolutions and bloodshed all over this planet. And one of Marxism's core beliefs is that religion was the invention of the wealthy class as a way to keep poor people from revolting. He called religion the opiate of the, of the masses. That is, we, we keep them looking to heaven and they'll forget about the pain and suffering in this life and they won't revolt and overthrow us and we can stay in power and we can stay wealthy. That is, if poor people believe there's a heaven after this hard life, they won't mind 80 or 90 years of suffering. So wherever you have communism, stands to reason you're going to have religious persecution because the communists want to get rid of religion because they think it's a vestige of an old regime. So religious persecution and communism go hand in hand. And when the Iron Curtain fell in the 1990s and the Soviet Union began to break apart, we saw a spiritual awakening in places like the Ukraine. And many of those dear people are our wonderful brothers and sisters. And we owe them our prayers and our help, but it should not surprise us because it's religious and Christian persecution. The question before us this morning in our text is, was Karl Marx right? Is the Christian faith simply pie in the sky by and by to help us feel better so we can endure this life, or is it real? Paul says it's real. It is the hope to which we've anchored our soul. There is suffering in this world, and it began in the Garden of Eden, but there is, praise God, a glorious day coming. And so the title of the message today is The Groanings of Anticipated Glory. Here in our text that I just read, we have three distinct sorts of groanings, plural. The first is the groanings of creation. Look again at verse 18 in chapter 8. He says, I consider. What he says here really is, I reckon. He's from the South. <laughs> that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation, that's the earth, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, that's vanity, hopelessness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. He did that, that's God, in Genesis chapter 3 in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is, the promise of God is not only are his redeemed going to be set free ultimately from the consequences and results of sin, but even the creation is going to be restored. And so this is a familiar phrase Paul uses, I reckon, logizomai in the Greek. You might remember it's an accounting term. 
is to put something on the scales. And he says, if you put the sufferings of this present world on the scales over against the glory that is to come, it's no contest, is it? The glory that is to come is so much greater than any suffering we might endure in, in this life. In fact, Paul says the difference is so great between the glory that is to come, the joy and bliss of heaven is so far apart from the sufferings of this present life that he doesn't even bother to come up with a word or a phrase to compare them. He just says it's unworthy to be compared. Now, he doesn't diminish human suffering. And by the way, Jesus never diminished human suffering. When he saw a funeral party, he was moved with compassion. When he saw people hungry and thirsty, he was moved with compassion. He, he did something about it. The Apostle Paul was a follower of Jesus. So he's not diminishing the reality of suffering. He's just saying glory is going to be so great that the suffering of this life is inconsequential in comparison to it. The joy of heaven is so much greater than the sufferings of this life. But until then, all creation groans under the curse of sin that we read about in Genesis 3. Now, when he says that the earth is groaning, he's not pantheistic or animistic. It's just a way of understanding why the world is such a mess, why we have tornadoes and hurricanes and wildfires and droughts and volcanoes, why they do so much devastation. It's because of the fall. It's because of the sin of man. If I were a college freshman this fall, I would be incredibly excited about going to my freshman year philosophy class where your classmates are going to struggle with life's big questions. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Young people, you need to know you have the answer to those questions. They're found in the book of Genesis. There's pain and suffering in the world because of sin, but there's hope because God says one day he's going to make it right again. He's not just going to redeem a people unto himself. He's going to restore the world to its original pristine and perfect condition. The new earth God has promised in Revelation 21 is one day coming when our redemption is completed. And he compares it here to the pain and groaning of a woman in labor. Yes, it hurts. And yes, it's excruciating. Yes, it's difficult. But she knows there's joy on the other side. And she can't wait for the consummation of this pregnancy. But it's not just creation that is groaning. It's people, it's God's people, Christians who are groaning as well. Look at verse 23. He says, and not only this, that it's not just the creation, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he's already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And so we groan as believers, knowing that something's amiss in this world. Things are not as they should be. We still struggle with sin. We still hurt. Our loved ones die. You say, what a second, Pastor. He, he says, we're looking forward to the day when we're adopted. You said last week that we're already adopted. Yes, positionally. In the eyes of God, he declares us righteous. He declares to be, us to be his sons or daughters but we haven't realized the full inheritance, the full weight of that yet, and we won't until we receive those resurrected bodies that we call glorification. You see, as we think and teach about our salvation here, we have to do so from three perspectives. 
uh, from three grammatical tenses, as it were, the past, present, and the future. So there was a point, if you're a believer, that somewhere in your past, God convicted you by the Holy Spirit through gospel message. And he revealed to you that his assessment of you is correct. And you agreed with that assessment that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You called out to Jesus and he forgave your sins and God justified you. And now he treats you as if you have never sinned. That was in the past. And we are saved now because of that. But we are being saved through sanctification, through this lifetime. He's keeping us saved, in other words. But there's coming a day when our salvation reaches its consummation when we receive resurrected bodies fit for heaven, and we call this glorification. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved, Paul says here. But until then, life's hard. And indeed, all creation groans under the pain and heaviness of that truth. Paul says, though, we've been given a down payment to remind us there's a better day coming. He calls it the first fruit of the Spirit. First fruit is a down payment, and the Holy Spirit is sometimes in Scripture referred to that down payment of the future inheritance that awaits us in heaven. There's an already and a not yet element to our adoption. We have the promise, but not yet the consummation of this heavenly inheritance. But don't worry, friend. It is safe and secure and guarded by God. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says that heavenly inheritance is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away. And here's why you can count on it, because God the Father stands guard over it in heaven. Now you may have some money in one of our local banks, and maybe you like to go in and count it every once in a while. I don't know. But when you go in the door, they put a big sticker on the door to give you comfort. It says, your deposit is guaranteed by the FDIC. I don't know how much confidence you have in the FDIC, but I have more confidence in Jehovah God to protect my heavenly inheritance from being lost or stolen. See, anything you inherit in this life, and I hope you get an inheritance one day, anything you get, whether it's a house, boat, or money, will one day depreciate to zero. And if it doesn't, before Christ returns, the scripture says it's going to be burned up with fervent heat. That's why he says, lay up treasure in heaven where thieves can't get to it and the moth can't destroy it and it will never depreciate in value and not even an army on earth could protect it. But our heavenly inheritance is different. We've given, given a down payment now, the Holy Spirit. But in the future, we're going to have the full understanding of our inheritance. And that promise is sealed with the signet ring of God and he stands with his Word of honor over it, awaiting the day of our redemption. And until then, we groan under this heavy burden of life. He calls it a hope. He said we were saved in hope. Every time I hear someone say, I hope the Cowboys win next year, I cringe because every time they do, it diminishes this word biblically. See, the biblical word hope is not some fantasy that's not based in reality, like the cowboy wish. <laughs> when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of that which is most certain, that which we can anchor our soul to and be absolutely confident it will happen. We wait eagerly with our hope 
in these promises. That word wait eagerly here in the Greek means with head thrust forward. You grandparents know what that is. We're bringing the grandkids over this afternoon and you can't help but look out the window between the blinds with head thrust forward, looking down the driveway, hoping they'll be here soon. This is how Christians should behave. This is the posture of the redeemed. This is why for 2,000 years, Christians have been praying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Our head is thrust forward, looking for glory. But because we're still in these bodies of death, we need help. Paul says we even need help to pray appropriately. That's how weak our flesh is. And that's one of the functions of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So thirdly, let's, let's look at the groanings of the Spirit. We looked at the groanings of creation, the, groaning, the groanings of Christians, and now the groanings of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if you happen to be in this building about 8 o'clock Monday morning last week, you might have heard a shout coming from our third floor. I hope you were not alarmed. It was just me. As I came to finally understand the truth of this verse, it was the response reflexively that I had in my office. It's one of the longest Greek words in the New Testament. Sinon to lamban otai. To come around on the other side and help is what it means. And here's why I shouted. Our burden is too heavy, isn't it? Paul spent all of chapter 7 talking about the weakness of our flesh. Our burden is too heavy for us. So the Holy Spirit, sinon to lambanotai, comes around on the other side to help us. If you've ever been unloading a piece of furniture out of the back of a pickup, and you think, I can lift this by myself. And you get halfway down and realize, I have miscalculated. <laughs> and you start yelling for someone inside to come and help you. Here's the word. The Holy Spirit comes around on the other side and helps. He lifts our burden. Have you ever been hurting so badly about something? You can't even articulate a prayer. You can't find the words because the situation is so complicated. You don't even know where to start. You don't know what God's will is. The Holy Spirit comes along on the other side and helps. He says, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit does. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, that's God the Father. He's omniscient. He knows everything, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints. How? According to the will of God. So if the Holy Spirit is lifting your prayer burden up to the Lord when you don't know how to play, you can guarantee he does. Because the Spirit, the Father, and the Son are in perfect harmony. They would never do anything that was not the will of the other two members of the Trinity. So you say, well, I don't have to pray at all then. Just let the Spirit do the lifting. No, it's not how it works. We are commanded to pray without ceasing. But when we fall short in the weakness of our flesh, the Spirit comes around on the other side and helps our weaknesses. How does he do that? Well, he, all he says is he intercedes for us. He stands between. He fills up what we lack, in other words. 
And because although we are limited by our flesh, the Spirit is not. And although we don't have perfect knowledge of the Father's will, the Spirit does. And so I would say in conclusion, our response to that should be as believers, if we're marching to Zion, keep marching, you soldiers of the cross. Even if the road is long and you're weary and ready to quit, there's joy and glory at the end of the road. If you're serving and no one notices and you feel like you're not making any progress and you haven't seen any fruit, Christian, if you're serving, serve on, you servants of Christ. He knows and he will reward. If you're praying and your prayers don't seem to get to the ceiling, pray on, you prayer warrior. Because whatever is lacking in your prayers, the Holy Spirit will come around on the other side and lift your burden to the Lord. And don't ever forget... Paul's point is this, one day soon God is going to make all things right again. He has promised to do so and he cannot lie. It's not just that he's guarding over our heavenly inheritance, that's a given. But also he's made another promise that he's even going to make creation right again. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Now unfortunately we reserve this passage of scripture for funerals. We ought to read it all the time. Revelation chapter 21, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, has been given, I think, the world's greatest and highest privilege. He was ushered into the very throne room of heaven, and he was privy to see how this world's going to end, how it all pans out in the end. Revelation 21, 1 through 6, he's also told to write down what he sees for our benefit, and he did. So we read it. Revelation 21, 1, John says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Now, College freshman, next year when your philosophy professor says, why is there suffering in the world? You said, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. And then if they have further interest and they want to know how is it all going to end, you take them to Revelation chapter 21. And all the other 64 books of the Bible in between are the story of how you get from the garden to heaven. It's the scarlet thread of redemption. That runs through all 66 books of the Bible, and it ends in verse 4. Are you ready? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is what Paul means when he says the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. And unless you think this is John's fantasy or it's pie in the sky by and by, God the Father, the creator of the universe, puts his good name and promise and signet upon this promise. Verse 5, he who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, these words are faithful and true. You can anchor your soul to the promise of God. 
that one day he's making all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the promises of Scripture, these exceeding great and precious promises. And Father, what you require of us is faith, not works, to be saved. And faith is nothing more than believing your promises are true. So Father, if there's one here today struggling, I pray your spirit that convicts of sin and judgment and righteousness would grant faith which leads to repentance to someone here today. And Father, they would be set free and that they would be able to endure whatever sort of suffering they face in the future because of the joy that is set before them. And Father, we long for a day when this world, which is corrupted by sin, will be restored, which made right and new again. But until then, Lord, we have a job to do. We have a mission to take this good news of Christ's forgiveness far and wide. Give us strength. Give us boldness. Give us endurance and perseverance, Lord, until you call us home, until you come for your church. Father, I pray for some believer here today who's ready to quit. I pray you'd encourage them by your spirit today to march on, to serve on, and to pray on. And Father, thank you that there is joy on the other side of suffering in this life. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your guarantee. Thank you for your provision for us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.